Well, tonight's lecture is French. Ah, I am pleased to say. Um, start with a quote from General de Gaulle, and if we had all gone to school in France, we would know this quote by heart. It's all my life I have thought of France in a certain way. This is inspired by my sentiments as much by reason. The emotional side of me tends to imagine France like a princess in the fairy stories or the Madonna in the frescoes as dedicated to an exalted, exceptional destiny. Instinctively, I have the feeling that Providence has created her either for complete successes or for exemplary misfortunes. <laughs> if in spite of this mediocrity shows in her acts and deeds, it strikes me as an absurd anomaly to be imputed to the faults of Frenchmen, not to the genius of the land. But the positive side of my mind also assures me that France is not really herself unless in the front rank, that only vast enterprises are capable of counterbalancing the ferments of dispersal which are inherent in her people, that our country, as it is, surrounded by others, as they are, must aim high and hold itself straight on pain of mortal danger. In short, to my mind, France cannot be France without greatness. This is the opening paragraph of his, of his memoirs on, on, on France. Very famous, like that. If we had gone to school in France, we would know that uh, immediately. What is the greatness of France? This is the question, one of the things I want to think about today. Um, if you read the history books, the standard story is France. It's big, it's populous. In the Middle Ages, it was one of the, the wealthiest countries going, and certainly during the reign of the Louis, sort of Louis XI through Louis XVI, it was doing very well indeed. But at other points of history, it was a wreck. It was divided by civil war, overrun by all kinds of foreign invaders. So that can't be entirely correct, certainly part of it. Another thing, if you look at the map of France, I gave you a map, we'll refer to this several times. Um, France is in the middle of things. France is very much like Poland, and so French history is very much like Polish history in the sense that the boundaries move all the time, they get invaded all the time, they invade the other way all the time. Um, and so the geography of France is incredibly malleable. There's, there's really the, the notion that this is France, is better to say this is France for the moment. In 20 years, France may look very different again because about every 20 years for most of its history, the borders were moving. Incredibly malleable. Not, I mean, in the United States, we sort of set our east coast and then went west. And that's sort of the United States, those boundaries. But in France, the, you know, it's, it's, it can go down towards Spain, it can move towards Italy, it can go up towards Belgium, the Benelux countries, right? So all of this has always been very squishy, very squishy with France. So this is, this is not quite right either. Um, I think, and the argument I'm going to make is the greatness of France, what France is, is the French language. To a degree that I can find no comparable country in history. France equals French. To understand France, you must understand the French language, because this is really what France is all about. And we'll, we'll spend some time on that. Uh, just to give you an example um, of, of how influential this is, when I was in graduate school not that many years ago, who were we reading? So it's a big world, lots of thinkers, all kinds of American thinkers, German, Italian, Spanish, Chinese, Japanese, you know. Now, 
Paul Deman, Helen Tussaud, Gilles Deleuze, Paul, uh, Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, Julia Christeda, Ferdinand de Saussure. That's just off the top of my head. I just made a list real quick. Who, who were we studying? French, 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 French. How is that possible? How is it, given the entire world, and plus we're in America, not all that outward looking, with the most influential cultural and intellectual ideas of the late 20th century be coming from one country, again, from France. Again, it's because part of the genius of France, part of the greatness of France, and really much of the identity of France, is the language. So French, think of it this way, it's very important. So where does this begin? Well, it starts with sort of everything else, with the Romans rolling into Gaul. And they've been having sort of disagreements with the Gauls for a long time. If you're familiar with the name Vercingetorix, he was uh, probably the greatest of the Gaulish leaders and he got crushed and that sort of destroyed their program. And so the Romans in around 50-ish AD set up shop in a territory roughly equivalent to what we would say is modern France. Um, sort of more towards the north around the Paris Ile-de-France area, but, but spreading out. And they were there for about 400 years. But they were settled. And as happens, you start to get language drift. Because as you get slightly disconnected from uh, Rome, the influences of the native languages and, and just the, the distances involved, they're just Latin started to change. Then Rome collapses, cut off from Rome. And now the change really sets in. A few hundred years later, you already have an identifiably different language. These are called the Romance languages, of course. But they're beginning to, to drift. Frankish, or there are all these sorts of names for it. Um, by the time you get, well, and by the way, the intervening years, I'll have to skip over a lot of this, obviously, because it goes fast. But you've got the Merovingians. Think of them sort of as a whole bunch of Caligula's gone wrong. I mean, these were, these were really, this was not a pleasant bunch of people to have running anything. Uh, you know, they were a nasty, nasty, brutish, vicious uh, set of, of people. You get the Carolingian dynasty, uh, which is where we get Charlemagne. You're familiar with Charlemagne. This is, this is where he comes from. And this is during Charlemagne's reign, by the way, when you get an edict that says you have to use this kind of Latin in Latin documents become sort of church Latin. The reason they had to fix it is because it was getting so transmogrified into what we would now call sort of Middle French, you know, the French of the Middle Ages. No one knows exactly what Charlemagne spoke. He wasn't literate, but no one knows exactly what he spoke. Um, but there, all the guess is he spoke some sort of medieval French. And so this is where you really begin to see the division. Well, then the Carolingian thing falls apart. And this is why I said, where France is, God only knows. Because when the Carolingian Empire falls apart, you have this idea that you could have this big, expansive territory, but nobody's able to pull it off. And so it rises and falls. And about 9-11 uh, is an important date, just picking one of these. Um, out of Norway, the, the, the Vikings come. The Norsemen descend all over Europe. And they sack Paris several times. They ruin the countryside. They're invading all over the place. This is still somewhat of a mystery, exactly what's going on with all that. But in 9-11, Paris is being attacked again by this huge Viking army. And the Comte de Paris, amazingly enough, says, 
No, we're not surrendering. We're not going to just let them overrun us. We're going to hold in the middle of the city, which is the island in the middle of Paris. We're going to hold out here in this fortress. And we're going to stand against them. And they do. And they eventually negotiate this treaty where they say, you know what? Why don't you guys settle in Normandy and look over there? If you look just there, they've got a lot of money over there. They've got all this nice stuff. We think you should settle here and look that way. And this is exactly what happens. And so we have this interesting, and so the Comte de Paris is then, after this works, they, they like, you're the man, so they, they elect him king of France, right? So he's one of these early king of France. At that time, he controlled a region roughly the size of this room. Uh, you know, <laughs> so he was, he was the king of everything he could see from the top of the highest building in the center of Paris, right? I mean, it was not a big thing, but he begins to expand out again. But of course, then you get the Norman invasions about 200 years later into England. Now, what's curious about this is these are the same Normans who just got transplanted, right? So they're, they're in Normandy, but they're not like native Gaelic French people. They're, they're Norwegians, and they did a lot of trade, a lot of contact back there. But about 150 years, 100, 200 years of hanging out in Normandy, and they acquire French. And so they invade, they invade uh, England, which made... The French very happy indeed because we're like goodbye yes go conquer those people that's what what trouble could that possibly cause is what they're right? well if we fast forward about 200 years again to the 12th century I'm sort of rounding these numbers off if you fast forward to the 12th century um, trouble in fact comes back in fact the 12th century is key for three reasons here first. You get the official founding of the University of Paris. And to understand France and French, you must understand the University of Paris. It's officially founded, I think it's like 1176, they get an edict from the Pope that says, yes, you can be a university. But it had been an operation before. But now it's official. Why does this matter? One, France, or Paris, is a long ways from Rome. They, they got their charter from somebody who couldn't supervise them. As we all know, this is the way to work, a long ways from your supervisors. Uh, and so if you were in Rome and trying to operate colleges, which they had sort of schools and, and, and such things are forming also in Rome uh, and, and in Spain, but they're very much closer to the governing authorities. Paris, far away, much more liberty. And this was commented on at the time. People went to Paris, they said, wow, it's everything people say about Paris now. Beautiful, amazing, rich, lovely, and free. And so all the best thinkers, or many of the best thinkers of Europe, start migrating to Paris and to the University of Paris, the Sorbonne. This is the kickoff. This is you know, several hundred years before Oxford and Cambridge are even thought about. And this does two things. One, of course, you're there, you're learning Latin, but you're living for years in Paris, so you also learn French. So, and you learn Parisian French, which we'll see in a moment is very important. So all of the key thinkers who are going back to all the capitals of Europe come back speaking Parisian French. <coughs> this is the kind of French they speak, and it's a second major language for them. And they associate it basically with all the good times you can have in Paris. <laughs> so it's the language of joie de vivre already that begins to be referenced to this. That the, the joy, the freedom, the beauty, the loveliness. The Latin is what we learned in class. The French is what we learned 
you know, in the bars and the brothels. <laughs> this, this, is, this is what, you know, that's a big difference. One has very positive associations. Um, <laughs> not. I'll let you work out which is which. Um, and so that's, this is in the 12th century. Until today, that influence has continued. The reason I'm learning, you know, uh, Foucault, Derrida, Lyotard, uh, in graduate school in the 20th century in America is because of the university system in France. I mean, it's, it's, it's 900 years later, still going strong. Still turning out world-beating intellectuals. And it has and this continuous production. It was influential then. Thomas Beckett, by the way, writes about this famous um, English thinker, right? Where do you go? University of Paris. He's like, wow, this place is incredible. Blew his mind in 1192, right around that. Might not be the exact date, but it's right around there. Writing to his friends, going, oh, you've got to come to Paris. It's the place to be. Second important thing in the 12th century is Henry II rolls in. Uh, so what could possibly go wrong with sending the Normans off into England? It turns out to Henry II, who conquers essentially everything. Uh, if you look at the map again, right around Paris, it didn't show up too well. It's supposed to be a little bright spot there called the Ile de France. And it's sort of a district around Paris. Essentially, that is the only thing he hadn't really conquered. He destroyed everything. It's all taken. So now this is the Anglo-Saxon Norman reinvasion of France. So this, this moment of teetering on the brink where, oh, it could go extinct. Oh, no, it can't. Why? Henry II spoke French. Not only did he speak French, he spoke Parisian French because they imported people from Paris to teach him to speak French in the courts of England. For another 300 years-ish, French is the official court language in England. <coughs> Chaucer writes about this. He has passages where he talks about the quality of the French of the various people who are on tour with him. Because the better your French, the higher rank you were. And of course, the rule is always Paris. Again, Chaucer refers to this specifically in several passages. Uh, specifically, we also, particularly when he's talking about the uh, prioress, whose French is not that good because she's never been to Paris. Right? And so, so it's this weird moment where the territory integrity of what you would call France has been completely overrun by these foreigners you would call the English now, except for they speak French, and plus they were from France originally. Anyway, so what the hell is going on? I don't know. So this is why I say the territorial integrity of France, military power at this point is give or take zero. Um, so yeah, it's hard, hard to figure out what that means, but it's this interesting moment where France was almost conquered by French-speaking peoples <laughs> from France. <laughs> right? This, this is like the magic of France. I don't know how that works, but it works. Uh, so fast forward, you know, this gets turned around, the, 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 the area around Paris expands again, um, French becomes sort of, France becomes sort of ruled by the French, and then in 1539, uh, oh, I'm sorry, one more thing in the 12th century, you get the beginning of French literary influence. Another amazing moment, uh, you have the story of the Rose, the Romance of the Rose, which was influential all over Europe, written in the 12th century. Also, the Arthurian legends. The founding legends of Anglo-Saxon Britain come at least half, probably three-quarters, from France. Lancelot, that's the French invention. Uh, the, the Grail, totally from France. Fisher King, that's from France. All of these elements that we think, oh, these are the Anglo-Saxon, no. In fact, 
It may be more than three quarters of them. It's a very difficult scholarly question, but it's no problem to say half. It's probably a lot more of that myth actually came from French and French poems and French stories being imported into the Anglo-Saxon country rather than the other way around. And so the sort of founding Anglo-Saxon myths of England are largely, or at least in a good deal, from France again. So this, the influence of their literature is already in the 12th century pouring forward. Easy to forget this and lose track of it, but it, it, it's already underway. So then you fast forward to 1539. King Francis I puts out an edict. And this edict says all documents in the government will be written in French. The French of Paris, Parisian French. Now this is upsetting because in France of the time you have Provençal, which is a version of French. You have Breton, which is a totally different thing entirely. You have this, this very wide diversity of languages being spoken. But he says, no, no, this is the language. This is the official language. This is how it's going to be written. This is how it's going to be used. By the way, this is, again, not only just early, this is almost unique. We've never done anything like that in the United States. There is no official version of English. We say, you know, we want to, you know, people say, oh, we should be English first country. That's great. Well, what do you mean by English? How should it be written? What are the rules? We have all these different groups that fight about this, but we've never had the edict, the organization, that says this is it. So from even before that, but from 1539 on, French is officially focused of the government, not the language, but how the language is used becomes a central issue in laws, communication. If you want to get anything done in Paris, you have to use the correct language in the courts, everything. Standardized, very early, I mean extremely early. And then in 1635, to make sure you didn't miss the point, you get the Académie Française. Which is, a, which is an academy set up to immortalize, essentially, the French language, to protect it, to regulate it, to, to solve linguistic disputes, to protect it from foreign interlopers. With the rise of, of America, by the way, in the 20th century, this became a huge problem because they, they eventually had to approve things like le blue jeans. <laughs> right? because, because everybody was using it, and they didn't want to approve it, but they couldn't resist. So if you, you know, they, they would come up with French equivalents for all these words, and people would just ignore them. And then finally, the, the academy would say, all right, you can use les blue jeans. Uh, but but uh, they resist this. They fight this. But the, and this institution is still going strong, by the way. So we're now we're 400-ish years later, and the academy is still functioning. And the, function, the primary function of the academy is make sure the French language is strong and pure and based on a specific version of the French language, and that everybody speaks it. So again, hundreds of years ago, the idea of France is focused on the language, French. This is what it means to be French. It, the Académie Française tells you what it means to be French. It means to speak in this way and to use language in this way. <coughs> in a way that, it, almost the only closest thing I can come up with is the Chinese in the Confucius classics. It, it, you learned a particular kind of Chinese, and that's what organized them and gave them coherence. Um, 
So also in around 1635, you know, again, these dates rough, uh, Academy Francaise definitely founded in 1635, but the French becomes the official diplomatic language. Um, and so that lasts for almost 400 years, by the way. So from, from about mid-1600s until World War I. At the end of World War I, England uh, and America insisted that the nego negotiations at the end of the, the Paris Peace Treaty, although it was in Paris, oddly enough, uh, be held in English. Because by God, Wilson wasn't going to learn French, right? I mean, this is essentially what it amounted to. Uh, and so that was the end of France as the official diplomatic language of the world. Um, it, it, to, again, to a remarkable degree. So there's a 400-year run. Where does France get its influence from? Where does it get its power from? In part, just from everybody in the world wanting to communicate in French. An extraordinary achievement. There's no good reason for this, by the way. Again, it, it just, people wanted to identify with French and wanted to speak French. And so it became a de facto great language to work with. Um, that takes us roughly to the 20th century. Obviously, I've you know, sort of skated over a few, uh, a few issues and events. Um, so you get World War II, you may have heard of it, it's a big party. Um, France is conquered sort of rapidly. Again, certainly not military glory that, that de Gaulle could be talking about. The greatness couldn't be particularly military in that instance. Um, occupied, destroyed, overrun, and so liberated by the Allies with the French assistance. And so France sinks into what? Second world, third world status? No. No, why would they? UN Security Council is China. That makes sense. US, that makes sense. We won the war, China's huge. And was at that time our ally. Russia, then the Soviet Union, that makes sense. They also sort of won the war. Well, they, they lost it and won it, I would say. Um, England, because our ally, and the, you know, that was the other ally that won the war, and France. <laughs> Today, France has a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. Only five nations. One of them is France. What? How did they pull that off? I mean, they were resoundingly defeated and then liberated, which is fine. And then they end up with a permanent seat on the Security Council. If you look at the European Union, the European Union um, of today has 23 official languages. Having 23 official languages is exactly the same thing as having no official language. So this is, this is right, everybody clear on this, that you can't do business in 23 official languages, so they have no official language. Ah, where are the headquarters of the European Union? Brussels, where they speak French. Strasbourg where they speak French, <laughs> right? And, and, and Geneva, where they speak, oh, that's right, French. <laughs> Again, wow, how did that happen, right? This is this huge influence of French again. And so a lot of English is used in the European Union. So this is not to say that French is the dominant language by any extent, but it is a hugely influential language for the French. And so, they, this, this cultural influence continues. And so when the, the idea of the greatness of France, you say, well, how great could this be? 
So that's why I put the back of your, of your program there. This is my summary. Why is France influential? Why is French the language influential? Why does it continue to be influential today? Well, look at this run. Um, again, this is a, just a, a, a briefest of lists. Uh, the Middle Ages, again, you, you got this, the Song of Roland, which if you know anything, you may have heard of that if you're inter at all interested in, in medieval literature. Lancelot the Knight, which again is the foundation, uh, one of the foundations of the, of the Arthurian legends. Romance of the Rose is sort of the, the 12th century bestseller. Everybody was interested in it, everybody liked it. It maintains influence today. Uh, then you get uh, Rob Blay in the 16th century, Gargantuan Patagruel, and then you get Montaigne. Again, I mentioned Montaigne Latin because he had this bizarre upbringing where he was trained in Latin. His family didn't let him have any contact with native speakers. All the servants were trained to speak Latin, and his parents only spoke to him in Latin, classical Latin, Roman, you know, 4th century Roman Latin. And so he was one of the last people raised in Rome. Uh, of the fourth century. And so his Latin was perfect. But when Montaigne went to write his essays, his, his, his memoir sort of thoughts, he wrote in French, even though Latin was in fact his first language and was the language of scholarship. Why would he do that? Because already, in, in, at this time, French is recognized as that significant of a, of a language. Sufficiently advanced, sufficiently important, sufficiently influential that you want to express yourself in French, uh, and he did, and was hugely influential on the on the rest of European literature because of that. Um, by the way, to be literate in France today is to have read Montaigne a hundred times. This is if you want to know how to write well in French and why French is different from English. Their whole structure of their essay, the whole way they produce writing. It's Montaigne, Montaigne, Montaigne. It, it, it is different, and much of the beauty comes from his thought. Um, Lafayette, Pascal, and then the second one, Blaise Pascal, uh, La Pensée. It, the Pensée, it's just, that's the second probably. With Montaigne, this is the other thing. You think like Pascal, and you write like Montaigne. If you can do that off, you will win all the French literary prizes, right? This is the key. You can, you can pull it off. Um, Pascal, Rochefort, Cornell, Molière, Racine. I mean, Cornell, Molière, Racine. How's that for a, a, a triple header, right? Those, those are your starting lineup of playwrights. You're going to do all right. Um, Provost, Voltaire, Rousseau, Diderot. Ha, how's that? That's pretty good, right? Just one, two, three there. Uh, Marquis de Sade. Wow, only France could produce him. What a great guy. Uh, Rousseau de Tocqueville. If anybody hasn't read de Tocqueville, I really re you want to know anything about America? Read de Tocqueville. He, he basically he has a lot. Not all of it right, but boy, did he get a lot of it right. Marvaux, Beaumarchais. I mean, Beaumarchais. I, I don't even know. You just read through Chateaubriand, Stendhal, Balzac, Dumas, Victor Hugo, Jules Verne, the Goncourt brothers, Mapant, Zola. Michelet, André Gide, Proust, Breton, Larue, Céline, Colette. I mean, every century, France has not produced one or two world-class thinkers who influenced the writers, literate writers, all over whatever the sphere of, of, of the reach of, of European letters. They produce five or ten. I mean, it, it, it's almost unimaginable, this unceasing flow 
of greatness in literary and philosophical thought. Um, it, it, there's no equivalent like this, uh, basically in other languages. Again, the, the closest equivalent I come back to is, is Greek, where the, you just get this unending series of incredibly powerful thinkers so that everybody who wanted to be literate wanted to read the Greek material because look at this, just, you know, for 250, 300 years they produced thinker after thinker after thinker after thinker. Well, this is what happened with France. If they had culturally dried up and everybody had soft spots, well, everybody would ignore them. Eventually you go, well, why bother learning France? They're not that significant anymore. But again, look at this list. How many people have heard of Jean-Paul Sartre? Right. Or Proust. How many people have heard of Proust? Think about this. One of the most influential novels of the, of, of the 20th century was written by a guy who not only rarely left Paris, but rarely left his bedroom. <laughs> you know, this is in, in a French that's so impenetrable that French people can't read it. Uh, and, and, and yet, here it is. I, I looked up the Nobel Prizes for... Um, for the 20th century, well, since Nobel Prize has been given, given and uh, 19 French uh, folks have won uh, the Nobel Prize, which is hugely over-representative of French, of French speakers. Um, eight Americans have, actually they claim more than that, but, but several of the Americans who have won were actually from Eastern Europe, like Czeslos Mislos. Yeah, he won when he was living in America. He was not an American writer. There's no way you can call him an American writer. Um, and so it's this strange world that we live in, where you are probably, how many people here have, have studied French at one point or another, right? Look at that, yeah. So there's about three quarters of the people here have actually studied French. Why? Population-wise, it's not a huge country. Militarily, uh, you know, it's, it's third tier of military power. Certainly not significant there. Geographically, trade-wise, it's actually a very large part of, of European trade, but it's not a huge trade partner with the United States. Canada and Mexico, by the way, much larger trade partners than France is with the United States. So why have we all learned French? Why have we all studied French? Why have we, we haven't studied French? We've probably heard of many, many, many of these authors. This incredible cultural richness that's built around, specifically, the French language, the Belle Arts. So I want to stop and just and think of a few of the examples of where this influence has come from and, and what it's meant. Uh, to us, um, and, and sort of then wrap up with maybe where we are today. The difference between French and Latin um, is primarily twofold. One, uh, now I've got to get this right. Did I write it down? Well, here we go. We'll, we'll see if I get my Latin. Oh, no, I did write it down. Good. Uh, it's better if I get it right. Uh, So, je vois, tu vois, et vois. This is French to see or to view. Right? Notice the ending here is the same. In Latin, this would be vidi, vidi. This ending 
it, isti, and e identifies who's doing it. So vidi means I see, vidisti, you see, vidit, she, she, it sees. In Latin, you do not need this identifier, which means that this can go anywhere in a sentence. And so word order in Latin tend to be moderately loose, certainly much looser than it is in French. In French, these endings are simplified. Many, many, many of them just dropped, as you see here. Conversely, this requires the use of more pronouns and much tighter sentence structure. So this is, this is step one to understand. This is why it's not Latin anymore. Um, second, they dropped all kinds of vowel and consonant sounds. Uh, this is why you can't pronounce French, because they, they speak poorly. This is the problem. No, uh, they, they, they dramatically altered the way uh, Latin was pronounced. Once you learn, I wish we had time to go through this, but once you learn those uh, pronunciation changes, it's very simple to immediately recognize Latin French words, French Latin words, right? It's no problem at all. Because you go, oh, the ST has dropped to, a, to an E sound or an U sound, right? It's just, and so when you get that sound, you go, oh, that's from the Latin this, which means, oh, that's what that word is. So it gives you this very direct connection. So the vocabulary in French is still largely it's direct from Latin. Hence, vidin voir, not that far off. But pronunciation and word order changed pretty dramatically over, over time. Uh, and so this is where they shifted. And this in introduces all kinds of different influences. But once you lose these endings, notice we don't have these endings in English either. Or we have almost none of them. I mean, this, this is quite... And so many, many, many of the words that come to English from the Middle French, which is from... Latin are simply the French or Latin roots that have dropped the endings. So, voir is where we get our word voyeur. Okay? This is just a direct importation of the French word that comes from the Latin. And so when we eventually get to English, we'll talk about the huge influence that French has had, particularly on our vocabulary. So one reason that the French language remains sort of hugely influential um, in part is because it is a huge, I mean, a vast part of the English language. If anybody ever asked you, oh, do you know what the root of that word is? Just say medieval French. That comes from the medieval French. Because <laughs> statistically speaking, you're right. I mean, factually speaking, you probably don't want to just do that. But, but statistically, you'll get it right because, uh, I mean, vast, vast numbers come from medieval French. This is where we get the language from also introduces all kinds of interesting things. What is the difference between swine and pork? Ah, great, I love this. Notice, watch this. So swine we don't use so much anymore. We use pig, but, but we still have the notion of swine. A swine is the animal out in the field. Low-class worker, swine herd. No good, right? Ah. When you eat it, it's pork. At the table, high class. Food, good. French word, Anglo-Saxon word. <laughs> 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 
This happens over and over and over again. The Anglo-Saxon word comes to be associated with the mucky bits, and French comes to be associated with the good bits. That's where the pork is good, the swine is bad. Pork is French, swine is Anglo-Saxon. You do the same thing with sheep and mutton. It goes on and on. This is a consistent uh, 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 pattern to our language. Um, because of this mix between the Anglo-Saxon, of course, and the French with the Norman invasion, as we spoke about. So another reason, again, it's influential, like I said, is because of all of this vocabulary that comes over quite directly. And anybody who reads literature should recognize this immediately. Second huge influence uh, is intellectual. Again, as I mentioned, for several hundred years, France has been turning out world-class philosophers. And when you look at, so for instance, our founding fathers, when they weren't reading the Greek and Roman classics, who were they reading? What languages were they reading in? French, one of the key languages. <coughs> Jefferson is an ambassador to France. He arrives in France ready to go because, of course, he would have known French. He's supervising the education of his daughter. One of the most important things was her French. He has one of them sent over with him so she can get French firsthand. So our founding ideas, the intellectual content of our country, again, like the Latin and Roman classics, a lot of it also comes to us from the French. Very different sense of, of existence. Some of our struggle actually comes from the fact, again, that some of the French ideas don't line up so well with our Anglo-Saxon ideas. And they continue to have this, have this trouble. Uh, finally, or not finally, but, but next, think about this. The French Revolution. Right? Why was this such a huge event in world history? The American Revolution was a big and interesting event. It was nothing compared to the French Revolution. The transformation that was wrought both by getting rid of the, of the ancient regime um, and then by the sort of Napoleon, like I said, the great, the great builder and great terror downer that was Napoleon, uh, that he sort of just cleans the slate with things, um, upset all of Europe. And everybody consistently said what was most upsetting was the idea. Why do we have to fight France? Because of the idea that you can live without a king. Why do we have to fight France? Because of the idea of the nation state that they're bringing to the fore. Why did everybody know this idea? How did it spread so rapidly? Why was it such a powerful example? Because everybody in every court in Europe spoke French. If it had been the Polish Revolution or the Czech Revolution, people would have gone, eh, might not have even heard about it for a long time. If they did hear about it, they would have heard about it in French. <laughs> no, I'm serious. They would have heard about it in French. But the French Revolution is a revolution that communicated with everybody instantaneously. And so this was danger. And it was you know, hugely important. And read the material from the time. Nobody was confused about this. All of the other... Uh, leaders said, we cannot allow France to set the example that you can get rid of a czar, that you can get rid of a king, that you can get rid of an emperor. 
We must destroy it. And so the, the history of the Napoleonic era is coalitions of countries attacking France to try and stop Napoleon, and Napoleon defeating them, and then overstretching and deciding he wants to take everything, and then he would be defeated, and then there would be peace for a couple of minutes. And then they would coalition with you, and they just did this over and over and over again until, of course, inevitably Napoleon loses, um, because he was just destined to lose. I mean, you can't do, you can only do that for so long. But the, the key notion is not just the military struggle, it was an intellectual struggle for this idea. And once the revolution happened, that was it. There was no putting that genie back in the bottle because, again, everybody knew. Notice that democracy wasn't new. We had democracy in America, and England had to sort of, you know, whatever their version of parliamentary loose democracy was. So this was not the threat. We tend to think, oh, the, the rise of democracy. No, France just got up and said, we'll have a parliamentary democracy, and we'll have a council that advises the king. No one would have cared. But the, the revolutionary ideas that were spread. Um, the, uh, another element is the encyclopedists. We, we've lost track of this, but it was this movement to try and collate all knowledge into one place, an encyclopedia, right? And so the people who were working on this were called the encyclopedists. encyclopedists. Leading minds mostly, almost entirely, of the French intellectual world. Uh, think of it as... It's almost like the a, a, a contemporary internet. Because if you wanted to look up something before the encyclopedias worked, you probably needed a pretty large library or an access to it. And this is a time when books are still pretty expensive. And the kinds of reference works that these people were using were wildly expensive and extraordinarily rare. And so they came up with the idea, notice this is to say, look, we want to make all of this information available to as many people as possible and disseminate it as widely as possible. Again, a revolutionary idea that had literally revolutionary implications. It was the, it, the sort of this strange version of, of sort of an internet database at the time, kind of a Wikipedia, if you will, as if Wikipedia was written by brilliant, incredibly literate people. Um, uh, but but, but this, this, this idea that then you could look things up, and you could, it's great to, to flip through these, because if you look up there, you know, look up the definition of a king, right? It wasn't that flattering, right? Uh, uh, so, you know, it definitely had its slant on what was going on. But again, why was this dangerous? Why was it influential? Why did everybody subscribe to it? Because it was in French. Other languages, German, Germany couldn't have done this. People would have shrugged their shoulders and said, eh, who cares? Um, two more examples here to tell you know, this, the, the ongoing influence. Um, when Voltaire was uh, in, in Paris, he, he always got in trouble. And he got in trouble because he was always writing tracts against the, the Dauphin or, or the king or whoever was around to make fun of. And so at one point he gets imprisoned in the Bastille, as he, a couple of times he went to the Bastille. And he comes out of the Bastille, and he immediately is awarded a prize, a big gold, they go gold medal, but you melt the gold down for money. So it was, it was, it was, they gave him a gold prize. And they said, okay, you just released him from the Bastille for writing these plays and, and, and stories that mock the government, why are you going to give him an award? Like, oh, he's a, the same guy who had imprisoned him, by the way. This is not somebody else. He's like, oh, he's a really good writer. 
I mean, it's Voltaire. It's true. And like six months later, he put a writ out for Voltaire's arrest because Voltaire, of course, just kept going on doing it. And Voltaire had to flee Paris for a while. He lived as an exile and finally was able to worm his way back in. They said, yeah, we'll let him in and we'll give him some more money and we'll give him a permit to put his plays on. Why? And then what did they do? They tried to arrest him because, and they just did this cycle over and over. And on the outside, you read this, you go, this is just crazy. How many times can you arrest somebody for sedition and, and, and you know, saying that the, the king is, is, you know, a bastard and, you know, all these sorts of things and give him money and literary prizes? It turns out over and over and over and over again. At one point, they were calling to arrest Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre was under threat of being arrested. Um, and, and de Gaulle, they said, de Gaulle, you know, left-wing radicals, you know, Charles de Gaulle, never be mistaken for, for a left-wing radical. And they said, you know, we, we, want, to put, we want to arrest uh, Sartre. And they said, well, let's do it. And, and de Gaulle said, no. And they said, why not? And he says, because France does not put Voltaire in prison. Which is not true, in fact, they did put Voltaire in prison. Right? They did it over and over. They did it like five times. But they always let him out and gave him money. And sometimes they gave him prizes basically while he was in prison for, for sedition. Right? So it, it, it's, it's almost unimaginable for America. Because imagine this. If we wanted to arrest somebody for something, crime against the government, and, and, you, and your defense was, I'm a really good writer. <laughs> I'm a spectacular writer. I'm, I'm like the greatest writer of my generation. They'd be like... Okay, you're going to jail. Ah, right? We, we, they're not going to let you off easy because you're a great writer. And Francis, this is, again, Voltaire is just the most famous example, but this hesitancy, there would be occasional crackdowns and everybody would go, well, we don't know, we feel bad about cracking down. This love of their own culture and belief in, again, the culture, the greatness of their own, not that other people are bad, not that other people are second rate, but our culture is great. World War II is about to kick off. Everybody knows cities are going to be bombed. So Berlin, fallout shelters. London, fallout shelters. Paris, underground cafes and theaters. <laughs> the government started a project of building underground cafes and theaters. So that when the city was bombed, you could still go to the theater. Because you want to see Racine, you want to see Moliere, you want to see the marriage of Figaro, right? You, you want to see this stuff. Because it's good. And it's what France is. And so that's what you build the barricades around. I mean, one reason, I mean, it's sort of this, this tragic moment in French history when, when, when they just give up and they don't want to fight in Paris. The, the government of, of France says, no, the Germans are going to win. Let's not defend Paris. Why not? Because it'll get blown up. We, we, they just, they just, it'll, it'll mess the place up. There's a great passage in one of Proust's letters where it, they can hear in the distance the, the bombing. This is World War One, not two in this case, of course. And you can hear the, the shells in the distance. That's how close the Germans got to Paris. And he walks outside at, at, at night, and which again... He wasn't a big one for leaving his room at this point. And the starlight is out, and the, the moon is full, and he said, it's quiet. In the distance, I can hear the shelling, and 
I was surrounded by all this useless beauty and I couldn't help but weep because they thought, ah, it's about to get destroyed. All of this useless beauty. But I would argue that it is precisely the useless beauty that is and has been and continues to be the greatness of France. In the arts, sculpture, music, Debussy, I mean, it goes on and on. Painting, we'll just mention the Impressionist movement, and it would be good if that's all you had, but obviously that's not all they had. Right? But it is, first and foremost, simply the greatness of the French language that has carried sort of the tricolors for before the tricolors existed for a thousand years. Again, go back. It's, it's a great moment where I want to start with the 12th century there. France is under siege. The, the, the political and geographic territory of the country is being overrun by Anglo-Saxon invaders who speak French. This is, this is, it's just the strangest moment. That even if they had lost, it's pretty clear that French would have won. That the language would have continued. France was one of the losers of World War II. It ended up being allied on the right side, but it, it lost you know, basically all of its prestige. Its economy was gutted. Its empire was rapidly dismantled. And so what are you left with? Why is France still a great power? How many of you have read all the Polish classics? Some great Polish literature. There really is. Even the Russian literature, outside of Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Pushkin, beautiful material rarely gets out. By the way, just a note, the opening of War and Peace is in French. <laughs> you, you, you may not know this if you don't read Russian, because usually in the English versions, it's translated into English. But the actual opening of War and Peace is not in Russian, it's in French. Because, of course, Tolstoy knew French, and he knew that the people who were speaking would have been speaking French. So this dramatic and continuing influence, so again, brings us right till today. France is the fifth largest economy in the world, give or take, fifth or sixth. It comes in, but let's just say fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. So do anybody think of them as an economic powerhouse? We, we just don't, I mean, I, don't, I just can't have a hard time wrapping my mind around the fact that France is this just economic powerhouse, fifth largest economy in the world. China, United States, Japan, Germany, France. And if they can pass Germany, they're going to be so happy, by the way. <laughs> they want to pass Germany. Uh, but but, but the, the, the fifth largest economy in the world. When you think Germany, you think economy. You think China, you think economy. You think Japan, you think economy. You think France, you think, oh, cheese. <laughs> right? Isn't that right? I mean, you know, they're French cheese. How, how big and powerful could they possibly be? So that, and then we also lose track of the fact that the French is spread all over the world. If you account the 
foreign speakers of French, French is probably the fourth or fifth most spoken language in the world. A lot of this depends on how you count and how you score. <coughs> uh, maybe sixth, but could be as high as fourth, could be as low as sixth. Because you, you, we forget things like Quebec and Canada. What is the soul? Why is Quebec different from the rest of Canada? They speak French. Think about that, how strange that is. Imagine we had one state where they spoke Spanish, and that was the whole reasoned ultra of the state. We're going to call it California soon. Uh, but but, but this, is, this is the idea. Right? For, I, I believe it's true now, but I know for a long time in Quebec, they, they encouraged French speakers from all over the world to immigrate in. So it didn't matter how poor you were, if you're from Tunisia, some back village in Tunisia, incredibly poor. No, we want you. At the same time, um, um, British Columbia had this policy of saying, if you have a million dollars in liquid assets, we'll let you immigrate. Yeah. So they had this immigration from Asia, they called them the yacht people. Right, because all these super wealthy Asians were showing up. See, that makes sense to us. You have a million dollars, you immigrate, you help our economy, we love you. It makes no sense to us to say, we don't care how dirt poor you are. We don't care what your religion is. We don't care. If you speak French, we will let you immigrate. We encourage you, we will help you immigrate to Quebec. Because we love the French speakers. Talk to anybody who's traveled in the Caribbean. The former French islands are completely different than the former British colonies. Many of them still speak French. A country like Tunisia just had a revolution. Oh, essentially a 100% Arab country. Essentially 100% Muslim. They all go to school in French. Why? Because they think it's a great language. <laughs> That's basically, they, they identify very strongly with literature, culture, European ideals, greatness. Cultural witness, which riches, the good life, is French. So think about this in our own imagination. Think of the place it occupies. If you think of France, again, you don't think economic powerhouse, you don't think military powerhouse. So why do we think of it at all? Who cares? There's a lot of countries in the world that we never even, we don't, who, Uzbekistan. <laughs> Why would we even think of Uzbekistan? Right? Ecuador. That's a fine country. We never think of that. But France occupies this huge intellectual space. And my argument, to wrap up, is essentially that is the greatness of France. That somehow, some way, through the magic medium of the French language, it has managed to occupy this very large part of the intellectual space of thinking peoples for 800 years. Hence, ladies and gentlemen, the French language. <laughs> yeah.